the World Series is here and it features two teams from the same part of the country that took very different paths to get there. It's Friday, October 27th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter and this is Front Office Sports Today. This is not necessarily the World Series matchup that MLB would have picked, but it's the one they got. Joining me now to discuss is Front Office Sports newsletter co-author David Rumsey. Welcome, David. Hey, Owen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you. So you've been looking into expected viewership for this series. What have you been finding? Right, yeah. So actually, in today's newsletter, it's completely World Series related. So it's a takeover. If everybody wants to go read the Front Office Sports uh, newsletter today, uh, everything is about World Series. And yeah, one of those stories is uh, about viewership. So obviously the World Series is going to bring in the most TV viewers uh, of the year, you would think, on any given uh, MLB season. And, uh, you know, in previous years, kind of been hovering around mm, 11-ish, 12-ish million. And and we'll see what this matchup produces, right? Because like you said, we have the Texas Rangers, the Arizona Diamondbacks, not exactly the two teams you would think that have the largest national profiles. Of course, Dallas is a pretty big market in itself. But anytime you're talking about um, a World Series or a championship event, an NBA Finals series, whatever, what have you, you know, uh, the cliches, the leagues always want uh, uh, L.A. and New York, right? Or Boston or a Miami, a Chicago, a, a team with a huge following. So neither of these cities are uh, ne- necessarily known as baseball cities. They don't have huge, huge fan bases like those top, top markets. So, so we'll see what we get. But in the end, you know, Fox, which has the World Series, is going to probably win every single night of primetime that they air these World Series games in. Yeah, they're both you know, top 10 population centers in the U.S., just not not ones with enormous baseball followings, you know, maybe sort of middle of the pack and when it comes to Dallas and less than that when it comes to Arizona. Um, it's kind of been a, an interesting shift viewership-wise, this playoffs. And it was MLB took such a step up this regular season from the downward trend of the previous years, you know, often credited to the pitch clock, you know, maybe also just kind of coming out of COVID, you know, people getting one more year to to get on their feet. Um, but yeah, and the playoffs have been something of a downturn. But again, yeah, no New York teams. LA got bounced in three games, didn't win any of them. Um, yeah, Chicago's not in there. So you know, Philly made a run, obviously, but now they're out. So it'll be interesting to see if this, the World Series itself is enough to bring a national audience. Right. I think we would need a very competitive six, seven game series to really drive that viewership up, you know, past what we had last year for the Astros and Phillies. And, you know, the Phillies were close, obviously going to a game seven with the Diamondbacks, not quite uh, getting there Uh, on the American League side. You know, there was no Yankees, no Red Sox, as we have been writing about a lot at front office sports this year, those uh, traditionally strong teams and, you know, big payrolls like the New York Mets just didn't pan out this year. So we got to the playoffs and, and we got what we got. Like you said, you, you had the upstart uh, in a way Baltimore Orioles and they couldn't even make it. So so here we are with, with the Rangers and the Diamondbacks. And the other thing is there's just not a ton of uh, huge household names, right? If the Phillies had made it, you have Bryce Harper and maybe a baseball fan or sports fan says, hey, I want to see 
you know, Bryce Harper play it in the World Series. You don't have uh, any big names like that on the Rangers or the Diamondbacks. It's more younger guys, um, up-and-comers that, you know, maybe some hardcore baseball fans are really excited to see how they perform, but not necessarily your casual fan that's going to tune in for one or two players specifically. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if this helps grow those markets at all, you know, both, you know, getting creating new fans that that stick around often. That's when people really tune into a team is when they're like, oh, we're good. Like, I, I want to, you know, I want to jump on the bandwagon. Um, and yeah, if, if any players like Corbin Carroll or someone has some kind of, you know, national moment where they or people uh, get introduced, you've also been checking out, um, looking at attendance. Hopefully these games all sell out because it's the World Series. But what, what can we what, what do we know there? Yeah, I do believe the games uh, will all be sold out. And then on the resale market, uh, some data right now is showing uh, kind of heading into game one in uh, Texas. And it's around maybe $1,200 for an average uh, resale price. So that, that's pretty high and kind of in line uh, with re- with recent years. You know, sometimes you can get, you know, huge, huge numbers and, you know, huge get in prices. And that can kind of fluctuate with uh, the really expensive close up uh, seats and then, you know, your uh, nosebleed seats. So, yeah. I think from a, from a local level, there's a lot of excitement for these uh, two teams to be in the World Series, and they're going to have a lot of support from their local fan bases. But like we were talking about with the uh, overall national viewership, I'm just not sure that there's going to be that uh, interest from fans who aren't there wanting to attend the game or support their team and just check in on the World Series as you have this busy slate of fall sports going on right now. Yeah. And I am happy that these two markets that, you know, haven't always had a lot to cheer for baseball wise are are having their fun, uh, you know, this October. David Rumsey, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Last year, the Arizona Diamondbacks finished the season 74 and 88, an underwhelming season, especially for a team that looked like it might be ready to take a step forward. But at least it was better than the Texas Rangers, who spent like they had nothing to lose and then lost 94 games. Now, a year later, those two teams are meeting in the World Series. Let's take a look at how they got there. Have you ever had a day where everything that might have gone wrong and maybe even should have gone wrong just didn't? That's the kind of season the D-backs had. They had breakout seasons from likely Rookie of the Year Corbin Carroll and Cy Young contender Zach Gallen, and had an otherwise solid, if unspectacular, team. And they had fortunate timing with MLB changing its rules. By the rules of 2021 and earlier, the Snakes would not have made the playoffs. But last year, MLB added a third wildcard team, allowing Arizona to sneak in with a record of 84 and 78. We saw the impact of the pitch clock and the other rule changes this year. Now we're seeing what can happen in the expanded playoffs. And once you're in, anything can happen. The Snakes beat the Brewers, swept the 100-win Dodgers, and somehow outlasted the Phillies. They did all that despite over 20% of their payroll going to players they released due mostly to poor performance. Whether or not you think the Diamondbacks deserve to be here, they are here, and now they have a shot at the second World Series title in franchise history. The Texas Rangers are here to make the case that sometimes you can just spend through your problems. Since the end of the 2021 season, the Rangers have dished out $325 million to Corey Seager, $175 million to Marcus Semien, $185 million to Jacob deGrom, $56 million to John Gray, and $34 million plus an option to Nathan Eovaldi. They're also paying Max Scherzer $22.5 million, with the Mets picking up the rest of his tab. They got next to nothing from DeGrom, but the rest of those guys propelled them to their first winning season in seven years. And they've already been rewarded for it. Their average regular season attendance jumped 20% from 24,831 in 2022 to 31,272 last year. 
The Rangers franchise began in 1961 as the Washington Senators. They moved to Texas in 1972 and had to wait all the way until 1996 for their first ever playoff appearance. Their only other World Series appearances came in 2010 and 2011, where they lost to the Giants and then the Cardinals. Now they have a shot at their first World Series victory in 63 years. Up next, I spoke to senior MLB writer at The Athletic, Evan Drellick. We talked about the World Series, of course, but also got into some topics around how much MLB teams are incentivized to try and the ongoing attempts to remove MLB's antitrust exemption. That conversation is coming up right after this. All right, very excited to be joined now by Evan Drellick, senior writer at The Athletic. Welcome back, Evan. What's up, Owen? Hey, great to have you. Uh, how, how you been? How you enjoying these playoffs? Well, this is where it's kind of funny from a baseball writer standpoint. Uh, you know, I do a lot of the off the field stuff. And so the general managers meetings uh, I'll be attending and the owners meetings I'll, I'll be attending. And, and both these are in the, the weeks right after the World Series. The general managers meetings are in Phoenix and the owners meetings are in Arlington. So that means for the next two to three weeks, I'm going to go between uh, Arlington to Phoenix to Arlington to Phoenix to Arlington, including the World Series. So that's where my head is at right now. I have to start packing, but that's that's yeah, what right. Yeah, I wonder if you just like keep a hotel room in both places, you know, the entire time. Probably not the most cost effective thing, but uh, you know, you'll you'll have two homes away from home. Um, and yeah, speaking of the World Series, uh, just as a you know baseball observer and fan, um, just start there where what are you excited about looking forward to for this matchup it is very new and different uh, put it that way i look i don't think it's wrong when people are saying mlb or fox are not as excited about this uh, the great andrew marshan john oren they had manfred on their podcast i don't know maybe a month ago and one of the comments that stood out to me there was manfred mentioned how last year philly and I think subsequently their fan base drove kind of the you know, drove the postseason for them. Um, and so, it, and, and Manfred admits that he pays attention to things like which you know which markets are involved. And he also, of course, has thirty children. And he wants every one of his children to uh, to have the, the spotlight at some point. So, um, I, I think it's real that this is a World Series that might lack some juice for people. But also, if you look and you want to look. You know, you you could find some intrigue here. It, it's it's not like the, there's nothing to pay attention to, but yeah, it's not your traditional blockbuster. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, on the business end, we we you know we get used to say like, oh, there's no New York, no LA, you know, no Philly now. Um, but yeah, for, as a fan, like I I think the Diamondbacks are fun. The, I like that the Rangers like just went for it whole hog and are being rewarded for it. So I think it'll be hopefully a, a good series. Um, and I guess, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it all shakes out, you know, ratings wise and and just in terms of are these good games? Yeah, the trade deadline is an interesting point. I mean, these two teams did go for it. You look at some other teams that got knocked down and they didn't. And it's really hard to establish a correlation and causation with, with these things and what creates postseason success. But uh, I think spiritually, it's not the worst thing when teams that try are rewarded it, you know that, that that's that's generally a good message i think to send in, in an entertainment business yeah absolutely i want to get to that um but yeah you i mean it, it, everything was so close you could make any kind of point like this but the diamondbacks picked up tommy fam and paul seawald at the deadline 
not huge names, but I don't think they'd be where they are right now. They wouldn't be in the World Series without those two guys. Uh, on the trying thing, I have this like half joke, half serious thing I say sometimes where trying is the new market inefficiency. Yeah. Where, yeah, the, the teams that try, you know, often get rewarded for it. The Rangers and, and now Diamondbacks and Phillies are, are very good examples of that. You had a column a little bit ago off of Jerry DePoto, uh, president of baseball operations for the Mariners, saying his goal is to win 54% of the time, uh, which just felt very clinical and spreadsheety and kind of bloodless. Um, at the same time, we, we you can sort of see what he's going for when the Diamondbacks, who won 84 games, which is a little bit under 54%, are in the World Series. Sometimes you just need to get as many shots as you want. Ironically, the Mariners did win exactly 54% of their games and missed the playoffs by one game. So they needed actually 55%. Anyway, curious to kind of get your thinking about all that uh, in light of this matchup, but also just, you know, in light of DePoto's comments. Yeah, I've been covering baseball for 15 years or so. I mean, if you want to go back to my time covering the minor leagues, this is all in the post Moneyball era. I think Moneyball is dominated. The, the Moneyball thinking has dominated my time in the sport as, as it's, uh, dominated anybody else who's been around it uh, and, and involved. And I think 15 years in, I've just hit a breaking point where I am tired of hearing about sustainability. I understand it is mathematically sound and good business practice uh, for teams to be interested in winning long term. But what does sustainability mean? It's really just a euphemism for cost control. There's nothing more to it than that. It's not some uh, set standard that applies to every team. It, 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 every team has a unique definition of what sustainability would be. And it's boring. I'm tired of teams selling to fan bases, to me, marketing in an entertainment business. Uh, the, the ROI hack, the five-year ROI hack that they've built for their owners. That's not interesting. What is interesting is when teams go for it. And I really don't think it's as simple as, well, GMs just shouldn't talk about it. I, I really think there's been a problematic mindset that's taken place where, you know, just make a spreadsheet of where everybody is in their 10-year cycle. And, and, you know, you could pay attention to where your team uh, falls on that 10-year cycle. You know, oh, oh, uh, they're in year three. Okay, we'll pay attention now. It's just a bad way to run an entertainment business. Effort matters. Effort is compelling. When teams try to win, that's compelling and grabbing to fans. And baseball has lost sight of it too often for me. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. I think the Moneyball A's, you know, the early 2000s A's were thrilling because they were beating the Yankees with this team of, you know, randos who didn't even look like they were baseball players. And it's like they'd cracked the code and like, you know, it, it was it was like they'd hacked baseball and it was it was cool. Um, and now, yeah, Moneyball is been kind of this this papering over of, you know, yeah, we want to win six out of 10 years or we um you know, we've got a long-term plan that, you know, for some teams like the Orioles actually eventually comes to fruition. If you're the Kansas City Royals, they seem to forever be in, you know, year or two of their long-term plan. I think trying will will be rewarded generally. Uh, but there'll always be every year there will be teams where it's like, yeah, middling payroll, middling performance, but they they break through in the playoffs. So yeah, I think it's gonna be just an ongoing thing that will will be part of our lives for a while. Yeah, not trying has been kind of effectively and, and smartly marketed to fans as something that is good for them. It's, it's I think, really very clever and and, and uh, something that 
doesn't really fly in other applications. Uh, you know, you can't sell a computer and say, buy this junky computer, continue to support it with your, your money. Um, because in a few years, we'll put out another computer. That one will be better. You know, it just it doesn't work like that. You don't get to sell a bad product um, in most other instances. And baseball has really smartly found a way to convince people to keep buying uh, a bad product. And that's, uh, I think, unfortunate and the kind of thing that over time, there is a cost to the industry. And when you are trying to compete with everybody, Netflix, Apple, name it. Any form of entertainment in your pocket is your competitor if you're baseball. Uh, the last thing you want to be doing is selling people on, no, here, just watch watch our portfolio of baseball players grow over a five-year period uh, to maximize the potential return uh, for this billionaire owner. That's not interesting to people anymore. It might have been more interesting, like you said, when it was new. It's not as much as it used to be. Yeah, it's very medium-term thinking at the expense of long-term thinking. Um, I want to jump topics to something you've been covering, uh, which is the attempts to remove MLB's antitrust exemption, which it's had almost since its outset. You know, it's literally about 100 years old. Um, first, let's get some 101 stuff here. What does it mean legally and practically that Major League Baseball has this antitrust exemption? Yeah, most legal scholars agree it's it's a bad application of the law and a bad Supreme Court decision from 1922. Most businesses in this country um, are governed by the antitrust laws that prevent monopolistic behavior. You know, uh, different businesses inside of a, the same industry colluding to set wages, set prices. Um, it, it's you know what we're seeing with with Google right now, and uh, and could continue to see in, in the tech space. But baseball was given a special status uh, back in 1922 by the Supreme Court that uh, the antitrust laws didn't apply. It is an antitrust exemption for baseball. And where this has an impact uh, would be argued by, I think, many to to, to be in different areas over time. But uh, most recently, the argument would be, well, when these 30 baseball teams, the major league teams got together a few years ago and said, you know what, we, don't, we want to cut 40 teams from the minor leagues um, and we're going to make that decision in concert rather than, say, the Mets going, you know what, I want to have a few more minor league teams than, than, than another competitor. That's an example of the type of behavior that if the antitrust laws did apply to baseball, wouldn't be allowed. That's, that's one of the arguments that's going on uh, in court right now. And we're waiting to see if the Supreme Court might actually take up yet another uh, challenge to the exemption. So yeah, the the one part of this that I kind of struggle with mentally is just what what it would look like if this exemption is removed by the Supreme Court if this this challenge is successful because we have other leagues like the NFL and the NBA that don't have it but just seem like they're operating in the same way as MLB as this one dominant force in the market. So what changes if this exemption is struck down? Yeah, and, and it is true that these other leagues it, it arguably engage in behaviors that if, if somebody wanted to try to take up the case, uh, they might have antitrust grounds to do so. I mean, I'm, re- I'm repeating what uh, a professor at Penn State, Stephen Ross, explained to me about this. He described it. This is an interview from a couple of years ago, um, although I talked to him again the other day, but as, as a failure of imagination that even in the leagues where 
the antitrust exemption doesn't exist and, and you could bring the cases, sometimes it's a matter of finding people who are interested to actually do it and would uh, follow through with it. Uh, in the case of baseball, probably the most immediate direct impact, if the exemption would be uh, overturned, uh, would be in future contraction efforts in the minor leagues. There is a suspicion the MLBPA is on the record in its amicus brief supporting um, this case that's in front of the Supreme Court and, and arguing that the Supreme Court should take it. The uh, MLBPA thinks that MLB is of a mind to contract more teams in the future. And uh, if you remove the exemption, that's probably uh, the most direct impact in the near future. Before minor league players were unionized, uh, they would have had potentially claims. And uh, w- when you have a union in place, your claims fall under labor law. Uh, antitrust laws don't exist. You would have to disp- decertify, disband your union to pursue antitrust claims, which we've seen in an extreme case, um, I believe in the NFL. But uh, that's a rare thing to happen. So, uh, you know, you, you could see other applications of it. Um, the, the, it, it people have tried to. Uh, bring antitrust claims uh, regarding relocation, um, territorial rights. Those haven't gone anywhere, you know. If, but if the exemption were gone, could could those claims newly have life? Maybe. Um, I should have gotten a JD to to say that confidently. But um, certainly, the the minor league, the treatment of these businesses in the minor leagues, uh, is kind of the the, the front and center issue. Yeah, I was going to ask about relocation, you know, that kind of thing. Like, could the A's move to San Jose like they wanted to a little while ago? That kind of thing. Well, that, Sounds that case like that's just sort really of a- gets thrown out, uh, you know, right away on, on an antitrust basis, right? It, 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 it removes a layer of defense um, that, that, that MLB has used in a variety of cases to just uh, kind of brush a problem away. And you'd have to discuss it more on the merits. Um, although, I, you know, I, I can't say I remember the specifics of, how that San Jose case worked out, you know, but, but there was an effort, right? And, and, the, and the antitrust uh, clause uh, exemption, I believe, ended up protecting MLB there. Right, yeah. Yeah, but it sounds like if that happens, we would just be in a new legal ecosystem and we wouldn't exactly know, like, what, what creatures survive and thrive and, and what die out in, in that new landscape. Is, is, that, is that, you know, your, your understanding? Yeah, it opens the door. It doesn't mean that overnight everything changes. It opens the door to litigation that uh, potentially could then change more things. It, it, you know, if the exception goes away tomorrow, um, it's, you know, MLB could proactively try to change some things it, 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 as a matter of self-defense and, and preemptively uh, protect itself. But um, it, it's just opening the door to, to potentially new cases that otherwise probably wouldn't have gone anywhere. Yeah. All right. Very interesting stuff. Evan Jolik, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks, Owen. That's it for today. Hit that subscribe button. We will keep you up to date on all the biggest stories in this ever-evolving space. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.